Welcome to this podcast hosted by Nadina Doherty and myself, Hans Grellen, at the University of Sheffield School of Education. In this series of podcasts, members of the school and colleagues will be discussing their latest work and study in education. This series of thought-provoking podcasts will encourage a rethinking of taken-for-granted assumptions about the role of education in society, its mission and its effects. Have you got your coffee ready, Ansgar? I do. Okay, let's get started. So today we will be discussing your recent paper published in Race, Ethnicity and Education titled I Felt Dead, Applying a Racial Microaggressions Framework to Black Students' Experiences of Black History Month and Black History. I thought perhaps we could begin with the title and the quote in particular which is capitalised I Felt Dead. So my paper, for those that haven't read it, it's about um, my doctoral research in which I spent some time in schools um, looking at the ways they teach Black History Month and also Black History and so I Felt Dead um, is a specific um, classroom instance in which David who is a black African uh, boy is shouting out um, those words Mm. in relation to um, performing a slave auction so the teacher who's called Kevin and obviously that's a pseudonym um, has asked the class to um, read out cards about black enslaved Africans and they might say you know work hard lives in a hut Um, he created those cards and so um, David is asked how he feels about participating in a slave auction and so he shouts those words I felt dead so the beginning quote is to capture um, performing um, victimhood and enslavement and yeah what the feelings were for him and also to capture can you really perform empathy Mm. is this something that you can actually do with black history and should you do it as well Hmm. okay i wonder if we could just take a few steps back and just set the context um, of your paper and unpack some of the ideas behind it so to start with black history month and black history could you perhaps explain how you approach black history and how it relates to black history month um, and also maybe say a little bit about what's important about the distinction between them uh, and how each in its own way might be considered to be problematic. Yes, so um, really it's how the schools approach Black History and Black History Month. So Black History Month comes out of a specific um, multicultural uh, adoption where you spend October looking at token figures such as Martin Luther King or Oprah and schools may um, provide an assembly um, or they may um, ask students to bring in their favourite black history, I don't know, biographies or on heroes and Mm. things like that. Um, Whereas black history is something much more intentional and it's part of the curriculum, but it's not um, officially part of the history curriculum at Key Stage 3 and that's the problem. Mm. So certain schools may teach black history if they have a high proportion of BME, that's black and minority ethnic pupils, but there's certainly no obligation to do that. And so those schools that do may look at um, the contribution of 
African soldiers during World War One, mm. um, or they may look at civil rights or African enslavement during the Middle Passage. Um, so Black History Month is something out of multiculturalism, something to be celebrated, and it lasts a month, whereas Black History is seemingly um, more intentionally placed within the curriculum. But mm. again, it's problematic because it's you know, it's not an obligation. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting that it's an, an obligation, isn't it? Um, and that sets up, uh, I think, your analysis of how schools engage with black history, isn't it? Something that they're not necessarily obliged uh, to engage with. And you talk at one point about what you call interest conversions. This, this seemed like a, a really important stage in your analysis, I thought. So I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that. What, what you mean by interest convergence, and how it sets limits perhaps on what the curriculum is prepared to include and what schools are prepared to accommodate and how they accommodate um, black history within the, the curriculum? Yes, so interest convergence comes out of um, critical race theory and this is a theoretical perspective that comes from the US. Um, so one of the tenets are, is interest convergence and that's the idea that policymakers will only engage with an aspect of difference so long as they also benefit. So for those that haven't read critical race theory or, or want a simpler understanding of this, take for instance Mo Farah. So Mo Farah is celebrated, he wears the British flag as he runs around and wins medals for Britain. Um, and so he is sort of diversity done well mm. um, and so he's promoted so long as he's winning um, but what is not really acknowledged is the two or are the two almost despised positions that he occupies so Mohammed being an African and also a Muslim and so interest convergence in schools, if we relate it to my research, can be shown by schools engaging with black history so long as you can focus on um, the abolition of the slave trade and Britain's role in abolition, but less so about Britain's role in enslavement and the lasting impact of it and its mm. legacy. And so that's where interest convergence comes from. Right. Uh, in terms of the history curriculum that you also discuss in the paper, uh, you talk about some recent developments at Key Stage 3, which were brought about under the Conservative-led coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. Could you say a little bit about the aims of this curriculum before reform and um, maybe explain to what extent, in your view, it exacerbated some of the problems that you describe in the paper? Yes, so it aims to provide um, a chronological view or historical narrative of Britain's past um, but unfortunately it relies upon teachers knowledge and access to resources in order to do this so like I said black history isn't officially part of the key stage three history curriculum and so um, to what extent can teachers really find information on Britain, black Britain's contributions to black history 
if all they have access to are inherited materials that repeat the sort of victim-centred black as slaves narrative or civil right, the civil rights mu movement in the US. Um, so choice and freedom, you know, it's good on one hand, um, but it puts a lot of the responsibility on teachers who may have had a, a really narrow um, version of history taught to them themselves. And so they just end up reproducing more of the same. Mm -hmm. um, so that's some of the problems. Okay. So we've talked a bit about the context. I, I wondered if we could talk now a bit more about your role as, a, as an ethnographer in this specific school where you carried out your study. Um, could you say a little bit about how you came to do your research in the particular school where you worked and what it was like working in that context as an ethnographer? Um, so I went to a completely different city mm. um, and I approached several schools and you know they can be very difficult to get into as anybody who works um, or researches in schools will know. Um, but I came about the study from my own disinterest with the way black history was taught, um, the same sorts of repetitive narratives. And so um, I wanted to understand not only what's being done, but how do black students experience what's being done? Because there was, wasn't anything in the literature there apart from, you know, they, they wish it was more mainstream and focused on a more wider narrative than just slavery and civil rights um, and so I yeah moved to a different city and um, I managed to get into two schools over the course of a year I spent a few months in each one and it was difficult um, it was difficult to watch what was being done and to be the role of you know as a junior kind of researcher if I'm looking at children under a table saying that they they feel sick and they want to leave and you know I'm just sort of sitting there horrified but having to not really reveal how I feel about it um, yeah that was that was an ethical problem for me that I, I grappled with but also being seen as the black history expert mm. and so in one particular school they would always look over to me to it was like they were wanting me to co-sign on what they were doing and uh, reaffirm what they were doing was correct um, so I had that issue um, how, but did, how did you deal with that um, I kept restating that I'm not a black history expert and I want to see how they were doing it mm. and so I just had to keep doing that um, but after about three weeks two to three weeks the children and, and the teachers as well actually got used to me being there and so stopped seeing me and so that's when all the good sort of data came about because they were no longer on edge because I was sitting there with a field note journal mm. writing furiously but they just stopped seeing me and got on with it so they were yeah I'd say more authentic in that way. Mm. Yeah. Um, you say at one point in the paper you say that what this paper offers is fresh insight into an old problem. Um, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about what is new about the insight that you offer here in relation to it being an old problem. So the old problem that I'm referring to is black underachievement and disengagement in English schools. And this is shown in statistics since really the 1950s. 
the problem with statistics is it just shows you what the problem is. It doesn't say why. And often research focuses on teachers' role and teachers' perspectives and less so about black students' experiences. Um, and so my research and this paper offers a fresh insight into black students' experiences by showing that the racism they experience in the classroom is legitimised institutionally because there is a very narrow approach to what's being studied, mm. but also um, on the macro, so sort of government level as well, because there is no obligation to teach black history. So essentially, it just they just leave it up to teachers to do. And so I've widened the lens with just looking purely at interpersonal racism from one teacher to a student and opened that lens up to say, you know, the problem of racism is, is also structural as well. And so that's the reason why black students have negative experiences of studying black history. It's beyond just they're disengaged with the curriculum or they're just simply underachieving, but mm. actually there's... Um, a much bigger problem here. Mm. I was just thinking again about critical race theory. You, mm. You've mentioned it already in relation to uh, the question of in interest conversions. I was wondering if you could open that discussion out a little bit more and say a bit more about critical race theory, how you adopt it in your research, how it helped you to frame your analysis and gain sort of a, or develop a critical insight into this particular problem. Yeah, so critical race theory, as I mentioned, is from the US. Yeah. And essentially the idea is don't spend a lot of time trying to find uh, racism, that actually it's there. Mm. And so um, racism is normal and it's embedded um, and, so, and becomes taken for granted for that reason. And so um, you start with the expectation that it is there rather than trying to find it. Um, the second key idea, I guess, of mm. that perspective is um, sort of equal opportunities, meritocracy, um, concepts that institutions and uh, the government will hold dear to education are actually loaded with colour conscious outcomes. And so they're not really colour blind schools I mean they don't really provide equal opportunities and it's not really founded upon the principle of the harder you, harder you work the better you'll do but time and time again we see that actually these principles have outcomes for particular students that benefit them and and also outcomes that don't benefit the great majority of other students mm. Um, and then another one is interest convergence, as I explained to you before. And then the last one is that um, counter-narratives or counter-storytelling. So that's hearing from outside the perpetrator's perspective. So hearing from the person who experiences racism and other isms um, can illuminate how racism manifests, the different ways it manifests, but also what can be done to improve their situation. So I could spend time speaking to teachers to find out, you know, uh, what do you think black students feel about black history? But actually it'd be 
more authentic and more long-lasting and meaningful to speak to those students who experience black history. And so those are the key ideas that underpin critical race theory and that's why I've applied it to black history because essentially the term black history itself centres black students. So you don't say, let's close the book on black history now and let's get back to white history kids. You say, let's get back to history. Whereas black history is specifically demarcated for those who are positioned as black. So that's why I've chosen critical race theory because it centres black students, centres those who are raced as black and under tries to understand their experiences and what can be done. Hmm. Yeah. I'd like to turn now to the key term which is uh, in the title of your paper, racial microaggressions. And I think I understand the, the significance of an interest in microaggressions. But how would you respond to the question where someone might say, look, okay, you're, you're calling these microaggressions, which means that they are small aggressions. What, how would you respond to someone who said, well, look, okay, so you're saying they're small, which means, okay, they might be important, but surely they're hardly significant in re relation to larger cases of racial violence, such as those which have recently come to light in the Windrush scandal. Why, why should your paper uh, be read in that kind of context? Uh, racial microaggressions are small, but they're subtle, they're stunning, and they have a really long and enduring impact on those who receive them on a daily basis. And it's almost the death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. That's the analogy that I can give. Um, constantly being told or it being implied that you are not quite enough, that you are not smart enough, that you are not, yeah, you're not quite enough. Mm. And so um, larger events can happen, but they're founded upon these smaller assumptions that who you are as a raced and gendered individual doesn't fit the dominant mould of what it is to be human, what it is to be a person. And so microaggressions, though they seem small and insignificant um, to someone who's not experiencing them, actually to those who are, it has real implications um, psychologically, but also physiologically as well, to constantly be told you are not quite enough and you are not good enough. Mm. And I had an example recently, actually, I went to, um, and this goes into the next question you're about to ask me, but um, so trying to find a hairdresser that can cut uh, mixed curly hair, black Afro hair, mm. it's very difficult. And um, so I went into a hairdresser's recently and she'd given me a consultation and touched my hair and she said, oh, it is, it's very soft and, you know, um, you, you know, you're lucky because you've got mixed hair. So if it was Afro hair, it would, wouldn't be as long and it would be dry and broken off. So, mm. so you're lucky. But yeah, we can fit you in and yeah, we, you know, we can do something with it. So just imagine if she, she's saying I've got mixed hair, there's obviously an assumption that someone in my family is black, so they must have terrible hair. That's mm. the assumption that the hair isn't good enough and doesn't grow. Um, 
So it's always reaffirming mm. that you are, you know, and 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 also the assumption is also like a compliment. That you, you know, you should be gosh, you should be so glad that what did I get European mixed hair? Then does that is that why I'm lucky? What does lucky mean? So um, yeah, I would say it's the death by a thousand cuts. The best analogy I can give, and it and it is as important as those larger ones because they they are constant and they are you know, regularly experienced by those who are racialized as non-white. Yeah, no, I can see that. Um, so we've, we've talked about the slave auction, which you observed. Yeah. Could you give or talk through another example from your study where you think it, it provides a good example of uh, racial microaggression and maybe situate that within a larger framework of institutional racism and, and what you describe as white supremacy? Yeah, I mean, I haven't really got one to hand another example from the study, but I can, you know, going back to the politics of black hair, um, if we're situating that in a larger context, there are black children who are routinely excluded from school for having inappropriate hair. But what does inappropriate mean? Does it mean that it's not um, straight? Because it won't be straight. And so... Um, that's reinforced by school exclusion policies that allow teachers to exclude and also Western and European notions of beauty and beauty standards, what's acceptable hair. And so you can police the black body and black hair in that way and have, you know, exclude children for it, for something that they're not able to do. So again, that's another version of a racial microaggression mm. in which what seemingly is a just a child being excluded can actually be reinforced by the institution and wider notions of what's acceptable and what's beautiful hair. So that's, that's interesting because I, I was going to ask you where next for your research and I wonder whether you're outlining here some ideas for where you might take things next. So I'm currently working on another paper. It's called White Guilt, Black Complicity. Mm -hmm. And um, it looks at teachers' guilt, um, because that was another key finding that came up in my research, um, that they teach black history because they feel guilty about it. And guilt, you know, it almost stops black history from being mainstreamed in a more um, intentional way, because actually it's about becomes about alleviating guilt more so than um, what do we do with that knowledge how do we integrate black history in schools so that's the next one but I'm also looking at emotions so as I I'm really pleased you asked me about my role as an ethnographer I grappled with um, how much of my emotions do I put into the research and so um, I have a paper now under review which looks at black women's emotions in research, to what extent can one be emotional? And also, if I am raced and gendered as the angry black woman, how much of my emotions will be legitimately received and how much of it will be, well, this is just identity politics, you would find this, and so we can you know, discount anything that you've got to say. So that's what I'm focusing on next. Okay, that sounds really interesting. I look forward to reading that paper when it comes out. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay.